I think, you know, I went to Nam as a soldier eventually in 67, 8, and I saw things that just uh, shocked me, opened my eyes. I'd never be the same again. I, I, combat is a, is a searing experience and uh, devastating to, to, to what your sense of life is worth and your sense of self. Uh, you have no illusions about yourself or what life comes down to. It comes to a very basic thing, uh, survival and killing. And you see a lot of ugliness in your fellow man and young people. I mean, it's a very genetic kind of thing. It just is breeded. It's, it's an inbred thing. I, I try to deal with that in Platoon, where at the lowest level, you see a certain type of man that's going to go a certain kind of way in a pressure situation. And other types of men are going to do better things, I think, uh, morally better. So uh, I, I got a, a hand, an, an eye full of that at about 19, uh, 20. Hey, movie fans, welcome to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. I am your host, Troy, and with me always is Brad Anderson. Happy New Year, Brad. We made it to 2021. We did it, man. We did it. Congratulations. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm also excited that today we are tackling something from a listener that had sent a recommendation in. So you want to give a little bit of backstory on this one? Yeah, Nick. Nick brought it to our attention, said, hey, I've got this war movie that no one really talks about. Um, I've been writing Criterion for over, you know, I don't know how long, but enough to where they said, hey, man, enough's enough. We might do it, but we're uh, probably not ever going to add this to the collection. So he brought it to our attention. I had never heard of it. You subsequently had a copy that you just had lying around that you bought at Walmart for four dollars yeah it was one of those 17 years ago (laughs) and it's been in your uh to watch pile forever um so yeah so now we are finally doing it um for our show i actually did a little research and you know there is a cult following that says like this is one of the best war movies you'll ever see that you've never heard of so we'll get into that but you know there are people who really enjoy this movie so it's it's interesting to go from never hearing of a movie to like finding out that there's like this niche of people who think it's amazing. And it's like only the internet where you find like a group of people who will gravitate to this movie that sadly, I don't know. You think one out of a thousand people knows this movie exists. What surprises me is the, the film in question, we should probably start there. Oh, sorry. Yes. yes. The beast also known as the beast of war. It was something that, as Brad said, I, I owned it, but it, it was just a blind buy. I found it in a Walmart bin. To your point, Brad, I never, heck, I was surprised I owned it, but so you many. Surpri- you weren't surprised <laughs> that you owned it. Yeah, I probably wasn't surprised. Yeah. The, the, watch, the two watch files, just, I got to work on that. Yeah. New Year's resolution, right? So you had never seen it. I'd never seen it. I, now, when I talk with people about this film, Surprisingly, a lot of people that are friends of mine are, are like, oh, yeah, the tank film. 
Love that film. It, but what is, I guess what's so weird is nobody talks about this when they're talking about war films from the 80s. And we'll get into that because I think it actually has um, a pretty interesting topic. I got to be honest with you. Of all the things that I like about doing this podcast, I mean, I, I love just sitting down and chat movies with you and, and the people we bring on the show. And, and we met some amazing people, VHS podcast, um, Files. They, Josh came on to the show. I mean... I love the interaction with other people who are very passionate about film the way that Nick is. It's probably my, my favorite thing or one of my favorite things. It might be one of my favorite stories I've ever heard of someone like keep like just keep reaching out to Criterion and saying like, please release this movie, please. Yeah. And and to the point where they say like, dude, you got to stop. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that story. And I love the fact that we get to dive into a film that I really know nothing about and it's it's just been off the radar it's i don't know it it's a pleasant surprise to come across a film because you and i watch a lot of movies and i think we know a lot about films and we even know about films we haven't watched yet but we, we yeah. know about them right the preconceived notion that hey this director is in it has done it even like these people are in it. um no it's written by written by some you know you know it's a sorkin film so we know there's gonna be a lot of walking and talking or whatever you know yeah. this one no clue yeah, so t typically, I mean, we start with some type of question about the genre we're talking about, or, you know, we, we even debated, hey, let's talk about, you know, some of the war films that we like. I, I would propose we get right into this one. I, I got to be honest with you, being on vacation for, for the holidays, watching this film, I got to do a lot of homework on this one. And I learned stuff, Brad. That's my that's my other favorite thing is when you when you do this podcast and you walk away and you go, I might be able to answer some questions yeah. on Jeopardy, man. So if anyone needs any uh, knowledge on the Soviet Afghan war, we might be able to uh, shed some light on it tonight. So yeah, I, I can't believe. I, I mean, it's like one hundred and one, but hey, we're gonna try. Yeah, we we did we we did some studying. So. I say we get right into talking about this sucker and a big thank you, Nick, for putting this on our doorstep. For those who are just finding us for the first time, as you know, we like to talk about movies that bombed. So, Brad, <laughs> let's let's start there. How did this sucker do at the box office? Wow, Troy. Um, this one is shocking. Um, $8 million budget makes 600, oh, I'm sorry, 161 k as in thousand, a hundred and sixty-one thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! I know a lot of people who make over that in a year's salary, Troy. So that's wow. like a number to me that's like, man, so minute. I even went and looked at the lowest-grossing films of 1988. So this movie comes out September 16th, 1988. Not that that matters because obviously no one saw it. It's not even listed in the top. Um, 239 films release, but when I went back and looked at the domestic, it would fall in number 216th or 17th. I'm sorry, of the 293 film or 239 films that released in 1988. So, so this thing barely got a theatrical release then, right? barely just, just a couple um, of theaters. And I and I looked. It was literally like a handful of theaters for like a week, week and a half, like two weeks, and it was gone. Okay. Um, and I could not find anything about the reasoning or what um, subject matter, maybe. I don't know. And you can also anticipate that 
when it comes out critically, no one reviews it. There's no top critics. Um, has a NA on Rotten Tomatoes. However, audience score, which there's 4,500 people um, rating this movie, it's at 85%. So that's pretty that's good. Pretty good. That's pretty good. good. Um, Troy. Yes, Brad. Do you want to know what comes out in September of 1988? Because there are some bangers. Well, I, so this is this is a fall going into winter release for September. I feel like studios would be would be releasing some Oscar bait around this time. I know it's traditionally like November, December. Sure, we'll call it Oscar bait, Troy. Okay, so you read? Yeah, 1988 studio. So this is Columbia subdivision Columbia. of Sony Pictures, right? So Columbia Pictures, they're putting this film out in a couple couple of movie theaters. What what else is out there? Uh, Eight Men Out, which is a baseball movie starring I think John Sheen. Cusack. Yeah, is Cusack in that movie too, or is, is that just? No, I think mm. you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earth Girls Are Easy. There you go, Jeff Goldblum. Yes, Running on Empty, which I believe is a River Phoenix movie. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Cocoon: The Return. The not sequel. The, the <laughs> sequel, which, oh boy, uh, Vampires Kiss, which has my favorite Nicolas Cage scene of all time in it when he says the ABCs. Um, Gorillas in the Mist, which I think that's probably your big, is that like your big Oscar movie for that probably year? Probably for, well, I don't know for that year, but Sigourney yeah. Weaver was definitely yeah. eyeing that statue, right? For best actress. Yeah. And then your daughter's, one of your daughter's favorite movies, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark comes out September 30th. So wasn't that her bomb recommendation? Elvira? Yeah. We're, we're getting yeah. to that this year. Yeah. So, so do you know, Troy, the highest grossing film of 1988? Honestly, I don't. We, we've been doing some of these questions, and I feel like I should know, because as soon as you tell me, I'm like, well, duh, that, that's an obvious choice for late 80s. It is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Makes um, total sense. $156 million, which, you know, now these are quaint numbers, but, you know, in 88, 1988, you know, they're pretty big. That's uh, huge. Coming, coming to America, which, you know, is important at the time. It's the second highest grossing film of 1988. 97% of the cast is African-American. And Eddie Murphy is still, you know, writing just at, at peak form in terms yes. of yes, being an A-lister movie star. Yeah, Beverly Hills Cop has come out already, so he's already, you know, riding high on that. Good Morning Vietnam is the uh, third highest grossing film of that year. So the, And then our, our rounding out the top five is Big and Crocodile Dundee. Every time, part two, I'm sorry, is Crocodile Dundee too, but every time I see Crocodile Dundee, I forget how huge those movies were. And Good Morning Vietnam was eighty eight. Eighty eight. Really? Mm -hmm. I thought it was eighty seven. Yeah. No. Huh. Okay. That's. It was so it released in eighty seven, but it was in Christmas, so it didn't make the mo most of its money until eighty eight. Oh, so, that's right. Yes. Okay. Okay. I hope I said that right. I think it's like a very late year release. No, I, th I think you're right. Okay. So it, it probably is one of those films that, again, because I, I remember seeing it in the theater actually a couple of times, but I do <laughs> remember it was one of those that when it came out was still in high school. And, and of course, just starting to get into film and understand like dramas and stuff like that, you are catching films. You care about the Academy Awards because at that point, you you think they're the best of the best hindsight no no yeah <laughs> but wow that that's fascinating you're so it's it's so funny that like i can remember that good morning vietnam comes out late 87 and makes all of its money in 88 
but I can't remember important stuff for work. But, you know, you want me to say something about Good Morning Vietnam, I got it right here. But, I can tell you where I saw Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, it was at um, Town East Square in Wichita, Kansas at that movie theater. So that's crazy. Now, there was another film that came out, I, I want to say, this same year, kind of about the same topic, right? Rambo 3? Oh, Rambo 3. Yes, yes. Yes, that's right. And and I looked this up. So Rambo 3, so in comparison, you said that this film cost how much? $8 million. $8 million. It makes about $160,000, right? Yes. Rambo 3, which I think a lot of people, I don't, I don't know what you think about that one. I mean, that that is considered probably lesser Rambo. Yeah, that's way lesser. Okay. I'd always thought it was kind of a flop, but Rambo 3 had a $63 million budget, ended up making $189 million worldwide. That is a dad-ass movie, so dads were going to go see Rambo 3, trust me. Okay. It didn't matter. did not matter how the quality was. They were going to go see that. that um, that's in, To me, it is fascinating, especially when we get into talking about films on this topic in the 80s, but... Let's talk about behind the scenes, right? So this is a Kevin Reynolds film. Oh, boy. Kevin Reynolds probably is known for one of the biggest bombs of all time, Waterworld. Waterworld, which I don't know if that's necessarily fair to the guy. Do you know the story behind that? No. Kevin Costner basically took over directing that movie. I think Kevin Reynolds actually left production like halfway through, but he is credited for the movie. But Costner, from what I understand, was the director of that movie and was in pretty much control from start to finish. And that would make total sense. I know the other thing about Waterworld was they built a very elaborate set for that film and it sunk. So they had yeah, to go they, back and do it again. Yeah. Are you one of those people who tell me that like Waterworld isn't as bad as people say it is? You know, it's funny. Um, I remember seeing that in the theater and didn't really care for it. And then I watched it, I don't know how many years, because that, that one came out right after I was done with college. But revisiting it, like, early 2000s, I think I kind of liked it. Once, you know, you, you sort of accept it for Mad Max on, on water, water as an action yeah. film. And I know that, was it Arrow who just did this big release that has, like, three cuts of the film now? So yeah. you've got, like, an international cut, the theatrical cut, some cut that showed on television... I think Waterworld will be one that we tackle again. When I look at Kevin Reynolds' filmography, he did work with Kevin Costner quite a bit. And what's funny? Where do you is, land on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Yeah. So, but he started his first film was Fandango in 1985, and that had Kevin Costner in it. So he's done a few films with him. He follows that up with the movie that we're talking about today, which is The Beast in '88. Then hits big with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in 1991. Follows that up with a Rapa Nui in 94 with Jason Scott Lee does Waterworld in 95 follows that up with a Sam Jackson film in 1997 called 187 have you have you seen that film no I, I do want to go back Rapa Nui is actually produced by Kevin Costner too oh, okay I yeah, saw they, that they have so, this huge yeah. working relationship right yeah he does uh, 187 the Samuel L. Jackson movie I remember I, I, I know I've seen it but I don't I could not tell you any difference between that and those, you know how those '90s crime dramas that were all gritty, like they literally all run together, like that. And well, yeah, and, and wasn't there narc. like a subset of just I don't know thrillers that had to do with high school, 
like the substitute with Tom Berenger and yes, stuff like that. So yes. I, I always confuse 187 with that. But I do remember liking it. It might be one we have to go back huge and revisit. Flop. Yeah, it was a huge flop. The Count of Monte Cristo in 2002, which I absolutely love. Tristan and Isolde in 2006 and Risen in 2016. He has a very... I, I don't know what you would call that filmography. It's it's a weird... It's like all over the place. You can't... There's no through line to any of his films. Like, And I was surprised how many I'd seen outside of yeah, the have you seen have you seen the, the Hatfields and McCoy show? Because apparently that's not terrible. I had never seen it. Yeah, he'd, he'd done a couple of television um, series as well. So he's he's got a very interesting filmography, but he's one of those directors that... When you start looking and going back at the films that he's done, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Waterworld, and, and maybe the films he does with Kevin Costner are the ones that come right out of the gate. But this other stuff that shows up here, again, I forgot about 187. I, I always liked The Count of Monte Cristo, and I forgot he'd done that one. Tristan and his old Risen, Hatfield McCoy's. I think he did a, a, an episode of Amazing Stories, the Spielberg show. Oh, okay. Um, but... Yeah, Risen is that religious, is the resurrection like? Wasn't that pitched as like the pseudo sequel to Passion of the Christ? Maybe, am I remembering that correctly? I I I know it is about them trying to find what happened with Jesus's body. Okay, and it's a period piece. Again, I know nothing about it. I would (laughs) I would hope it would be a period piece. (laughs) So let's talk about the screenwriter William. I'm going to butcher this one big time. <laughs> Mastromone, maybe? Mastromone? I think that's right. Okay, Mastromone. So he wrote the screenplay, and it's based on a play that he did called Nanawate. Which, good job. Uh, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I practiced that one. So we're going to get into that. Obviously, that is a Muslim term that specifically, I, I don't know the, I don't know if the literal translation is mercy. But it becomes a very specific plot point within the film that we're going to talk about in detail. I just heard where it was sanctuary. Is sanctuary? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which what the translation is. We yeah. really need to talk about this as well as another concept that shows up within the film, Badal, which is the concept of revenge. But let's let's talk about the people in front of the camera real quick. This is what, so you got Kevin Reynolds. If you told me that, okay, we're going to discuss a war movie by the guy who did Prince of Thieves and Waterworld and Count of Monte Cristo, I would be a little hesitant. Then, if you told me who is in front of the camera, I, I had to chuckle, to be quite honest. Because when you look at the list of people in here, we start with George, and again, going to... Zunza. Zunza, okay, cool. He, he plays Deskel. He, I would say, is the main antagonist of the film. Plays sort of the tank captain. Now, he is a character actor. If you go back and look at all of his credits from IMDb, etc., he's been in a lot of stuff. The things, I would say, the movies that always pop out for me are The Deer Hunter that he did in 78. Obviously, yes. He was in Basic Instinct in 92. I think he played Michael Douglas's partner, a detective yes, or something of that nature. he's the detective. And Crimson Gus, Tide in 95. Yeah. Yeah. So the other one and a this is would be the second film uh, that we're doing of Jason Patrick <laughs> plays. What was, what was the first one? Is Solar Babies. Yeah, it was. So he, he plays Constantine. 
So he did Solar Babies in 86, Lost Boys in 87, did this one in 88. And of course, he's He was one for 3 in the, in the in that Troy. <laughs> well, he's he's probably, you know, best known for Speed 2 Cruise Control from 97. I think Obviously, yes. We agree that's his best performance, right? This is where it gets really weird, okay? Stephen Baldwin plays Anthony. I don't know what you think of Stephen Baldwin, but if if I were to look at his filmography and sort of pick out two films that sort of represent the career of Stephen Baldwin, I would always look at The Usual Suspects in 95, which he is fantastic in, mm-hmm. and you would marry that up with a film that he did shortly after in 96 called Biodome. And I think that is probably the spectrum of Stephen Baldwin's acting career right there. Uh, Viva Lock Vegas, uh, the Flintstone sequel, Troy? Yeah, but I mean, that <laughs> it's exactly what I'm talking about. He, yeah, he picks probably some good, heavy material and then follows that up with the dumb, stupid comedies. And I, how many Baldwin brothers are there? And they're like 18 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I just w- Stephen is one that I could do without. He's in the Stephen. middle? He's, he's not one of the older ones, is he? Is, or is yeah. he the young one? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. We got Don Harvey um, as Kaminsky, another character actor. Steven Bauer plays Contage. I always get him confused with Tim Daly. I don't know if you know who Tim Daly is from the I TV don't. show Wings. Did you ever watch oh, that show? No. Okay. That was on USA. I was not a USA fan. Yeah, for, for some reason, Steven Bauer and Tim Daly, I, they kind of look alike to me. Mm. But the film that I always remember Steve Bauer from is Scarface. Scarface, yeah, he's Tony's right-hand man. Yes, and then... Uh, so, let's not... Okay. What? Let's back up the train just a, just sure. a tad, go, Joy. Go. Yeah. You know what I'm going to say, right? What? Homeboy's Cuban. Yeah, I was going to go there a little bit later. So, okay. he is uh, Cuban descent. So, obviously, he's uh, playing a character that is afghan and we're going to get into this in a minute when we talk about thoughts of the film so one of the things you have to keep in mind is that this from a story perspective because a lot of times we don't go into plot and narrative but maybe we should do that so everybody gets acclimated but this is a film really about russian occupation in afghanistan so half of your characters are russian or play Russian characters, yes. and the other half play, and I'm, I always get this word. I've been practicing this, practicing this today. Is the Mujahideen? 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 Mujahideen. Look at us trying to... Mujahideen. Yeah, Mujahideen. Mujahideen. Okay, so there we go. It, we, we need to talk about that here in a minute because I think the performances are going to be a huge topic of conversation when we talk about thoughts of the film. But it's such an interesting cast in front of the camera because, again, when you think Kevin Reynolds' war film and then you think of who is starring in front of it, I just would not have put those two together. And when you look at the trailer to the film, which I watched the trailer after watching the film, I don't know, based on the trailer, if I would have run out to see this thing the way they cut the trailer. who... The problem is, uh, Jason Patrick is the biggest name in this movie, right? Uh, back then in 88? No. Well, who is? I, I d- there isn't. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but So, like, what I'm saying, by default, it's Jason Patrick. Okay. And that's a problem. You, you haven't... Again, they brought in, even for 1988 money, $8 million is pretty modest. It's not, you know, we're not 
it's not crazy. So you're thinking, okay, we're just going to have this modest war film, small in scope. Surely we'll make some money. We don't need to have, I don't know, who's a big name in 1988. You know, it's like they didn't get anybody. So it's just weird that... Uh, well, and they, they hired a director that this is his second film, more or yeah. less. He, he, he did a little TV before that, but he hasn't done Robin Hood yet. Yes. there's. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no way this movie was making money. No, I, I would agree. Yeah. I, so. Now, did it, was I surprised when I saw that it was less than 200000 Absolutely. But, you know, I thought in 1988 you put a movie out, you're making... You know, at least a little bit of money, but obviously Wait, were not. you surprised? I, I don't know when you when you told me. I guess I'm a little surprised that they spent that kind of money and that got that kind of return. But when you take a step back and go, don't know who the director is. This script is based on a play. the The people in front of the camera, there are no names that were picked in order to grab people into the theaters just based on movie poster or marquee appeal. So it doesn't even really the name. Even me. the name isn't great right i mean the beast is well they weren't they weren't gonna go with the name for the original play right well yeah yeah but the beast of war i i don't know i think i like the beast of war honestly at least you know what it is i do too so a, a couple other facts about this it was shot in israel and one of the reasons why it got a limited theatrical release is when the film was started for columbia pictures David Putnam was head of the studio. So the way this typically works is you have the people in charge. They're going through scripts. They're deciding how to spend their money. And the head of the studio, I think, has a lot of influence over what is being put out by that studio. When you have a change of the guard and one person steps out and another person comes in, a lot of times the new person is going to look at the slate of releases. And if they don't agree with a project or understand really what that project is going for they may sort of cut it off at the knees and shelve it or put on a limited theater and that's exactly what happened to this thing so by the time it was released Putnam was out so he I don't know if he quit or he got fired Don Steele becomes the new head of Columbia Studios and as a result the film does not get a wide theatrical release and it only goes into a couple of theaters and it's retitled as the beast so the original title was the beast of war but they, they're just pushing this thing out there at that point. And you can tell if you go and look at any of the... There, there's really just not a lot of marketing stuff that appears on YouTube. I would say the like Mill Creek and those who are trying to do home media releases put out more trailers than I think the studio did at the time for, for trying to release this thing. Yeah, and I will say if you are curious on this movie, do not watch the trailer. <laughs> Now the trailer, it's, it gives a man. It just gives you the whole film, and yeah. well, it, not the whole film, but there are there are some plot twists and surprises that are in the film that are just shown in in the, in a two minute trailer. Yeah, it really spoils it. I'm glad I saw the trailer after. After yes, same here. But we're talking 1988, and I I know for those listening, we may be a little disjointed more so than usual. But what I really wanted to get was to this part of maybe the podcast and talk about the 80s because this is what I found most fascinating. Outside of learning history, which we'll get in a minute because I think you got to know the context of what was going on with Soviet Union and Afghanistan at this time, even U.S. involvement. What is even more fascinating is what was going on in the 80s with war films in that genre. 
So Brad, just off top of your head, what are some war movies that you can think of? Oh, gosh. Came out in the 80s. Full Metal Jacket. Okay. Yep. Stanley Kubrick. Yes. That's that's my go-to. Uh, Apocalypse Now, is that 80s or is that that's late 70s? 70s. Okay. Uh, Platoon? Yes. Okay. You're missing some big ones. Help me out. Missing an action? Come on. Oh, Chuck yeah. Norris? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, so I went back and looked at this. This was pretty fascinating to me. So you come into the 80s. And I don't know if this is necessarily a war film, but I think it's important because of the character that's at really the focal point of the story. And that's Rambo, First Blood. I mean, it's called Rambo, First Blood, right? But when it was released in the theaters, it was just First Blood. It came out in 1982. Oh, then we have like, what? I'm, now, now my brain's going. Uh, what's the Tom Cruise one? Born on the Fourth of July? Well, that's, that's later. Okay. So let, let's, I'm going to just going to, I'm going to list some. And, and let's just talk about where Hollywood goes with this genre in the 80s. So First Blood comes out, and that is really about uh, a vet who comes back to the U.S., is treated poorly. And, and First Blood is an action film more than a war film, would you believe? I mean, you get that speech at the end of First Blood where John Rambo is talking about his treatment as a veteran, et cetera. Yeah. But more than anything, First Blood is an, is an action thriller film. And you also get Gene Hackman doing stuff with Patrick Swayze in 83, Uncommon Valor, which, again, a bunch of vets get together. They go back to Vietnam to, to you know, rescue MIAs. And if, and if you're looking at the beginning of the 80s, the topic of war is treated from an adventure or action standpoint. So 82, First Blood, Uncommon Valor, 83, you get Missing in Action, 1984 with Chuck Norris, right? Now, Stallone answers Chuck Norris with Rambo First Blood Part 2 in 1985. And Chuck Norris says, you know what, I'm going to release something too. And you get Missing in Action to the beginning in 1985. You get this one. This is a big one. 1986, Top Gun. So you get Tom Cruise. Um, it's not necessarily a... I, it's not I know a it's not a war film, but it is a glamorization of the Air Force. Yeah, yeah. I yes. mean that's fair, right? Yes, exactly. It, it is a it is a Air Force propaganda film through and through. Yes. But that same year a film comes out and changes everything. And that's Platoon, 1986. Academy Award for Best Picture, right? It has a huge cultural impact. Hollywood changes its tune a little bit. So then that same year you get Clint Eastwood coming out with Heartbreak Ridge in 1986. Your film, Stanley Kubrick, Full Metal Jacket, comes out in 1987. Good Morning Vietnam, which we talked about, releases in 87, makes its money in 88. You get Hamburger Hill in 1987, The Hanoi Hilton in 1987. You get The Beast in 1988, Rambo 3 in 1988, Bat 21 in 1988, Casualties of War, Brian De Palma with Michael J. Fox. Oh, yes, Sean yes, yes. Fantastic movie, 1989. Oh, you missed one. What? Graves of the uh, Fireflies. Oh, Isn't that yeah. 1988? Anime, yes. yep. Yes. Born on the 4th of July is 1989, and we start to close it out with uh, Glory in 1989 as well. So I, I find it extremely interesting, and let's talk about Born on the 4th of July in 89 versus Rambo in 82. Hollywood looks at the Vietnam veteran and goes from action hero to anti-war hero within the span of a decade. Yes. 
Yes. And if you look at, again, the majority of the films that are coming out in the early 80s, again, Top Gun, you get to about 86, they're very action-oriented. 86 changes the game, and it really feels like all of these studios, because of Platoon and the success that really that movie brought to Orion Studios and what Oliver Stone was doing. I don't know when the last time it is that you saw Platoon. Has it been a while? It's been a little bit, yeah, yeah. I have. Ooh, it's been probably way too long, to be honest. Yeah, so after watching The Beast, I went back and watched Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and got to introduce Cameron, my son, to Full Metal Jacket, too, because he's starting to explore Stanley Kubrick, stuff like that. He's getting to that age where it's okay for him to explore Stanley Kubrick as well. Yeah, so, but I again, if you look at that list and you look at Hollywood, and, you know, I got to say, something like Platoon and even Full Metal Jacket. I don't know if they can be made today because what, what were the last couple of big war films that came out? What was it, Dunkirk in 1917? Yeah, 1917, yeah, but those are more period piece. Like, I remember seeing, like, the, what was the Chris Helmsworth one with the horses, like, 12 Horsemen, you get Midway. That was yeah, the big. 12 yeah, yeah. Um, that 13 Hours movie, which is more, you know, actually... We got a few, like, uh, Black Hawk Down was a big one. Zero Dark Thirty was another one that... Yeah, is but... That a, is that a war film, though? Are we... I, I mean, think it is. so. I, yeah. I, what's, what's fascinating to me is, I mean, obviously, Hollywood really saw the Vietnam War as something to sell at the end of the year. Oliver Stone made that a, a profitable commodity. Today... The war films that we get, and the the two that come to mind is Dunkirk in 1917, and after spending time with like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, and even the one we're going to talk about, again, I don't know if they could make those films from the late 80s that they can today, because the thing, and don't get me wrong, I like Dunkirk, I like 1917, but those are director films. The things that I remember about them are the cinematography and the gimmick, right, of Dunkirk or the gimmick of 1917. Oh, absolutely. Do you yes, remember yes. anything about the characters of, of those of those two films? The one guy in Dunkirk, all he wants to do is take a shit the whole time. <laughs> okay, outside like of that. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think 1917 is a, a beautiful movie, like just the way it's shot. Um, I mean, the lead character is really good. I mean... I remember him sitting at the beginning of the movie and sitting at the end of the movie. And, and those the, it's the visual aspects yes, of those yes. films that I remember. Yes. But there was something about the storytelling that was going on, I think, in the late 80s, especially at that topic, that made it more personable. I mean, Platoon still holds up and I think is extremely powerful. Same with Full Metal Jacket. But they're creating real people that are experiencing war versus I think Dunkirk in 1917 is a director creating maybe the horrors of war, but it feels... Are they moving away from the characters of war as in the people involved and actually to like the war, the wars themselves? Yeah. You know it, what I'm saying? it feels, it, it looks pretty, it's very technical, but I, man, if, if you watch Platoon now, you watch Full Metal Jacket, you watch the film that we're going to talk about, I feel like there's a little bit more going on with the characters. Yeah, and, because they're and because smaller of, in scope. It is. Well, pl- I, I don't know, smaller in scope. I feel like you get more impact from those films in terms of it. 
you you are drawn into those characters you're drawn into those experiences you don't necessarily like those characters if you go back and watch platoon or especially full metal jacket today those are some hard conversations that they're having and you you get some racist people in there that at the end of the day you end up caring about but they are I don't know how you would say this, but they're, they're really a product of their time. They feel authentic, right? Today, those characters are so vanilla, and you get the grand scale of war. You get all of the spectacle and grandeur and even the horror of war and the technical aspects of storytelling. But I don't feel as invested in the characters because they're just not drawn out the way that they were in the 80s. Yeah, again, I think it's much more macro today than again. Yes. Platoon might not be as, as, as micro in scope as I was saying, but you know, it's still not, you know, it's, it's not zero dark 30 or black Hawk down. Like those are pretty big. And so, yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I and I, I, those I, two I lament films... those days too, though, you know, yeah. those days where the character of Rambo was the movie, you know, like, you sold essentially a film on a character, a war character. I don't know if you can do that now, like you were saying, because I think people have turned, I think people have turned on war, Troy, you know, I, you know, maybe for the better. No, no, no. And Hey, at the end of the day, I'm not championing Hollywood here. It, it's Hollywood is going to put a film out that makes them money. So at the beginning oh. of the eighties, Obviously, if you look at the socioeconomic and political spectrum, having action war movies was a good thing, right? You get into the later 80s, people are going, you know what? We kind of want a more retrospective experience, and we're trying to dissect and handle the Vietnam War, which if you're looking at the late 80s, that really wasn't too far from when the Vietnam War ended. I mean, as, as a country, we're still trying to deal with it, right? And you, and you have this filmmaker, Oliver Stone, who experienced that when he was 19 or 20 years old, makes this just beautiful film. It, it really has this voice. It impacts everybody. Hollywood looks at that and says, wow, we can make money off that. So it's Kubrick, funny, like, you get a film. Eastwood, you get a film. <laughs> you know, the, the, turn, the turn on, like, on these war films literally happens in Ronald Reagan's presidencies from 81 to 89. Like, it, it was literally those eight years. It's just funny how we look back on that. Literally the 80s in those war movies, Ronald Reagan, essentially, right? Yeah, for the most part. But you, you get to see maybe the culture and the collective thought transition from the beginning of the 80s to the late 80s. And I think it's interesting that you bring up Black Hawk Down and Zero Dark Thirty. You get Black, Black Hawk Down, I think, is 2001. Zero Dark Thirty is 2012. So those are still, you know, retrospectively eight and 19 years old or 20 years old. Yeah. And then you get into the Dunkirks and the 1917s and the Midways, sort of the bigger budget war films that get released now. Honestly, they're cold and empty in comparison to the stuff that was preceding that. Again, the debate then is, are they effective at storytelling or are they just, you know big popcorn flicks that people can sit down and be dazzled with either the uh, gimmick of trying to recreate one shot or the gimmick of telling three different stories, you know, within a particular time frame. You know, at the end of the day, 80s did it better. <laughs> well, the the, black, the the back part of the 80s in terms of their handling of that topic, 
I think really did it much better than what we're seeing today in terms of trying to get across maybe the personal, I don't know, the personal touches of what war does. And, you know, at the end of the day, you don't understand how bad it is or the atrocities of it until you can live it through a character from a storytelling perspective. Yeah. Let's not forget, like, the Hurt Locker is probably one of the best war movies of all time I've ever seen. So I, I was thinking about that. and I was like, oh, wait, the Hurt Locker, like smaller in scope, much more character focused. 2008. Pro- yes. Yes, exactly. But no, I, I think you're 100 percent right now. Let's not be disingenuous and like we'll have to go back and look in 30 years and see if people are still talking about Dunkirk in 1917 like they are t- like we're talking about Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. Probably not. But, you know, there's there's a reason why, you know, it's 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 really not fair to compare much to those two films because, you know, you ask Joe Schmo anywhere about what's their, you know, put together a list of your top 50 films. Most people might have those two in it, period. I, I would be surprised if they did. I, I mean, and don't get me wrong. They I, did or didn't? I don't know. I, oh. If somebody came to me and said, hey, you're putting a list of all of the best war films together Dunkirk and maybe even 1970 Midway I would be surprised if they were on there in terms of you're you're looking at the genre and if you're you're trying to treat the genre from a very dramatic I don't know best of type movies I don't know if they would make it on there because in hindsight I actually think what's going to happen is 30 years from now people are going to look at them and go yeah they were good gimmicks in terms of from a filmography standpoint for Nolan or Sam Mendes, I mean, they're good films, but I don't think they're going to have the voice or the lasting power that something that came out of the late eighties did. Yeah. No, no. What I'm saying is like, yes, most people though would hold up platoon full metal jacket in pretty much the Mount Rushmore of, of war films of all time. So it's kind of hard to, to compare anything to those because they're just they're the cream of the crop. Yeah. And what makes this film that we're talking about interesting is it's coming out at a time period (laughs) where people are going to the cinema because they are fascinated with the Vietnam War. But we have a film, The Beast, come out and it's specifically talking about a little conflict. Well, not little. A little. (laughs) But it's talking about a conflict that doesn't necessarily, I would say in the world stage directly involved the United States. Now we'll talk about that because there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes. Did you have much knowledge of the Soviet Afghan war prior to this? Prior to this, I knew about it simply because of Rambo three, as bad as that sounds. Well, yeah. Also when nine 11, nine 11. Yes. 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 So I I think once nine 11 happened, you start putting the pieces together and you go back and doing some research you you have this incredible story of what was going on between the late 70s leading up to the 90s leading up to 9-11 but I think it's important to maybe give a brief history of that before we get into Contacts of the Beast because again I find it pretty fascinating that the United States is looking cinematically at their own endeavor with the Vietnam War and trying to reconcile you know their political identity with what happened um, during that time period and then you have two films that come out. So Stallone does Rambo 3, and then Reynolds comes out and does The Beast. And they're both about um, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So it 
it's a war that takes place approximately from 1979 to 1989, right? Do you know why they were trying to invade Afghanistan and take it over from an occupation standpoint? I don't. Like, I still kind of am a little bit weird, like, don't have all the details about why. Yeah, this was a little unclear for me, too. The, the My first reaction really comes down from... Was oil? <laughs> oil, you know. Yeah. But if, if you take a step back and look at it historically, uh, what was happening about that time period was that country was starting to get more friendly and open up its U.S. relations. And again, this is just stuff that I read over the week. But I found it kind of fascinating because a lot of people were comparing what was happening in that time period to how we are looking at that country and how we treat it, right? Not not the Vietnam comparison. So it's my understanding, the best analogy you can think of is Soviet. the Soviet Russia looks at that and says, we have a, a communist regime, mostly. We're trying to support it. There's, the person in power comes in and is starting to be nice to the U.S., And Russia looks at that and says, look, if the United States gets a foothold here with this country, then the United States is going to start parking missiles and and have a military footprint right in their back door. Yeah, this is Cold War era stuff. Yes. So if you think of everything that, you know, the United States just went through with the Cuban Missile Crisis, this is the Soviet version of that. So they're looking at this country and saying in no way, shape or form. Are we going to give up control of this? We still want to have a, you know, a communist regime within this country. But what was happening was they are taking a military approach to control. And there were groups, insurgent groups, the, the Mujahideen. Mujahideen, okay. And uh, smaller Maoist groups. And they're fighting this nine-year guerrilla war against Russia. And you've got... These. Primarily in the Afghan countryside. So it's it's all in Afghanistan, pretty much. Yes. And what is interesting is all of the other countries start to get involved in this, and specifically us, right? Yes. So the, Mujah- the Mujahideen, I'm going to get this wrong all night. Mujahideen. <laughs> Mujahideen. They were backed by the United States, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, United Kingdom, And you got the Cold War going on. And so everybody is trying to beat up Russia by providing weapons and funding to the insurgents. Now, Russia is going through this country. And I think the estimation is 562,000 up to 2 million civilians. Not not military, civilians were killed. And tons of people from the country just fled. Which, if we're going to make an estimation, you think we can get it within... 1.5 1.5 million, like half a million or 2 million, somewhere in there. You know, I know it's because, yeah, it was brutal and they killed a lot of civilians. And I don't think don't they have like the census data yeah, <laughs> for I know. that country because their their central government isn't really no, as established I, I, or yes. technologically advanced. So when you see a number of like 562,000 to 2 million, that's who you talk to because most of these villages and everything that they are just crushing, they're not exactly sure how many people are living in these villages at that time. But realistically, you're probably going to be on the high end, right? So Soviet Russia for nine years is trying to take over this entire country. 
you have these insurgents that are being funded by the United States and other countries who are fighting back to them. And at the end of the day, this whole thing really contributes to the Soviet collapse and, and the end of the Cold War. Yeah, this also was, <clears throat> I mean, so the Olympics of 1980 are in Moscow. Um, you know, we boycotted the Moscow Olympics. Yes. The United States did because of the invasion of Afghanistan, which is insane to think about today. It is. And insane. Here's where it gets interesting. So Soviet Union is attacking this country. They're, they're trying to prevent all of these Western influences. It ends up really bankrupting the country. It's not going well. They can't win against the insurgents. 89 to 90, they start to more or less give up. And then from 90 to 92, this country's just in turmoil. The, Mahaja, the Mujahideen at that point, which are these guerrillas, they, they were never under a united command, right? So they're never unified. No. And you start to see a bunch of people trying to control different areas of the country. And then what happens is you get the Afghan Civil War that if, if you read Wikipedia, if you read any, read any of the like history books or something, people are pegging it from 1992 to 96. And what happens is around 1994, an Islamic-inspired group and army, the Taliban, enters the scene. So mid-90s. And they gradually get the upper hand, about 96. The only group that was left to oppose them was the Jamaat is e Islami, and they're fighting with the Taliban from '96 to 2001. So around 2001, Taliban sort of is is in control of this country, and what happens is you get 9/11, and then yeah. we get into a never-ending war with Afghanistan. A never-ending war with Afghanistan in 2001. The, all, because, all because of the Soviet Union. Thanks a lot. Yeah, the unattended consequences. And it's so crazy to sit here and think that Hollywood in the late 80s was creating Rambo 3 and Rambo was out there fighting with the Mahajadeen, which eventually be the Taliban. You've got the movie that we're going to talk about, The Beast, which is really... The best way to describe it is it is the Soviet Union's version of Platoon, more or less. Okay. Uh, just at a high level. Uh, yeah. There, there's a lot of nuances and differences. And yet, fast forward all these years, and us trying to usurp the Soviet Union, and in the midst of all of that, leaving an entire country in ruin. I mean, we, did, we, didn't, <laughs> we basically gave them a bunch of resources to fight the Soviet Union but when it came time to help them with their government we bailed on them and as a result of that the unintended consequence are are you know the things that happen you know obviously in 2001 which led us to send a bunch of troops and sort of get involved with with that excursion yeah they we didn't necessarily want Russia to win but we really didn't want Af I mean Afghanistan to win either we just didn't want Russia to win so we were making sure that Russia didn't get a foothold in Afghanistan is really the only thing we cared about. We didn't really care about the people. No, no, absolutely. That was obvious. So, man, that's a lot of backstory and information for a little film that made $160,000 back in 1988. 
And we haven't even talked about the film yet. So it was a bomb. Critically, never really got any reviews. Like you said, a lot of people who watch it do kind of fall in love with it and champion this thing as a very good war film. So Brad, I just kind of want to know your initial reactions the first time you watch this thing. So my initial reaction, and I hate for this to be my initial reaction, but I was so distracted by the Americans playing Russians. It was really hard for me to get past that at the very beginning. They all have Russian names, but when you're talking about like the Mujahideen in this movie, most of those are played by, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, Afghanis or you know, Pakistanis or whatever. Like I, I feel like those, most of them besides Stephen Bauer, uh, are pretty authentic. But when it comes to the Russian guy, like for a long time before I knew it, I was like, are these Americans? Like they're white. Amer- I mean, they look just like white American. I mean, so it was kind of distracting. Um, it wasn't until like they said their names. I was like, Oh, these are supposed to be the Russians. And then it was like, okay, move on. That's fine. But that was really distracting at the, at the very beginning. And then it was like, okay, now we can kind of move on with my moving, <laughs> moving past the fact that, Hey, there's Americans playing Russians, which I don't know why that bothered me so much, but I don't know when you're going for like an authentic war movie, that to me kind of stands out as, is just something really distracting. But after that, I really well, kind of... I have a question for you Go about ahead. that. So that that does take some getting used to, which is you start this film, you know historically you're watching a Russian army, army invade an Afghan village right in the first 15, 20 minutes, right? Yeah. yeah. So everybody that is Russian, per se, are American actors... And they're speaking just the way that you and I are today. Mujahideen are all speaking their language. And it's subtitled. It's subtitled. So were you wanting something that was a little bit more like Reynolds' other film, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where you would have Kevin Costner or something trying to speak English but add a authentic native flair to it? So were you expecting... I don't know the what's the Arnold Schwarzenegger like Russian English like where's your vodka and yeah I don't I, I don't know what I wanted it, it's hard to say I I just when you, you open a movie and this is like the Soviet Afghan war and the the Afghan part looks pretty authentic and then all of a sudden you turn to the Russian side and they're like hey Billy let's go and you're like mm, wait a minute I mean and again they have Russian names and all that and I it takes you 10 minutes to kind of get over it. And I understand that, but it is something that was really distracting at the very beginning of this movie. After that, you're like, okay, now what are they going to do? And then it just gets into like this brutality of war for a while. And then it, it moves on to like the morality of war. Like there's a lot of like topics that this thing just kind of goes to. It's like, you know, from one thing to the other pretty quickly, Um, and some of the turns I think might not be as earned as I want them to be, but there's a lot going on in this movie. And and again, we've, we've mentioned it at the onset of the, of the podcast. I had no idea what I was getting in for. And, you know, you think, oh, this is just a tank movie, but it's, it's a lot more than that. Um, so I, I, and I, I want to piggyback off that comment. 
just specifically that topic over why the Mujahideen are speaking Pashto, I think Pashto. is the language, Pashto, yep. which Stephen Bauer, we'll talk about him in a minute, amazing that he would deliver all of his lines in that language and he sells them. But do you think it's intentional? And the reason why I ask that is if you look at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and again, I'm not a military or history buff to even know the similarities or differences between U.S. invasion of Vietnam, but on its surface, it does it share seems... a lot of similarities, right? Yes, it does. Yes. So do you think that's intentional then because this movie was made for an American audience? It only got released, I think, theatrically here in the U.S., which is why it made only $160,000. Yeah. But do you think it is an artistic intention to say that your Russian soldiers who you are following for a majority of the film, you're stuck in that tank with them for a big chunk of it. Is it intentional for them not to be speaking Russian, that they should have all American accents, American actors, and you identify them with to, to a certain extent? Yeah, because on the beginning of this film, the Russians are the good guys, right? You're, you're going along with the Russians. So they're the good guys. I don't know if, are they really the good guys out of the beginning of the film or I, I mean your lead antagonist is is a Russian right I mean well you, your, your Russians show up they're speaking English and they decimate this village and within the first 15 minutes they're putting a guy under a tank yeah they crush a guy crushing him yes I know. I, I, so I don't know I guess I'm, that would be I my guess, question for for Kevin Reynolds but it's impossible for me to see this in 2020 and not think about 9-11, you know? So I guess my initial thought was, oh, the white guys are the good guys because of 9-11. You know, like that's how I took it in 2020. Oh, yeah. Um, I totally understand that. And, and I, I don't and... know if, if <laughs> obviously in 1988 that wasn't the case, but in most war films, when you're going to see them, the white guys are the good guys. Well, most American war films... Put it that way. Well, this is an American war film. Oh, I know. It just I know. happens to have Russians. Right. But I, I wanted to put that stipulation yes, out there. Yes, <laughs> so yes, your, yes, your no, Hollywood no, no. American war yes. films. Yes. The white guys who you're supposed to back. And I think they play on that to a certain degree. But again, one of the questions I would have for Kevin Reynolds, because unlike you, the first 30 minutes of the film, I had a tough time with it simply because I'm going back and forth between really to what is supposed to be from a story or a narrative standpoint, ethnic groups, Russian, Afghanistan. And yet and one of them is very authentic. Yes. And one of them is extremely authentic. And the other one is very Americanized. Even the terminology, the military terminology and everything that they're using on the Russian side falls in line with more American military terms. If, if you get into the end, the only reason why I know that is because I think I read it, but <laughs> Most uh, right out of the gate, they're you're based to your point. You're you're identifying with what I think is the villains of the film because of what they do to this village and what they're doing to these people. And in 1988 times, I'm wondering if that was intentional. Because again, if you go back and look at that list, the Beast is coming out at the same time. We still got Casualties of War, Hamburger Hill, Good Morning Vietnam. You've got all these films that are still coming out with a Vietnam theme and trying to deal with what America did to that population. Did, 
did they make that choice to say we're we're not having Russian actors, we're not subtitling this, we're not having them do the fake, you know, Russian accent with their American English lines, stuff like that. Is is the intent of that to be your this is you as an American. Mean, c- could you have a war film that releases out of Hollywood that's a hundred percent subtitled? In 1988, probably. In not. 1988, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I understand the reasoning, but it's just distracting to someone who was expecting Russians, you know? Yeah, so, no, I, I agree. It's distracting. But once the dust settles and you walk away from the film, is it intentional? I, you know, like, you could almost substitute, like, again, like we were saying, take out the you know, putting in Vietnamese in this movie and like, it's the same movie. You know what I'm saying? Like you've got, you've got another platoon. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, well, th- this even starts with a you quote. You can almost argue that like, this is like a secret, like, you know, anti-American warfare. You know, it's like, it, I think can, it is. I think yes. it is very anti-American. I, I think it's just an, well, I don't want to say anti-American. I think it is anti-American war. war. Anti-American yes. war. It, is trying to do what Platoon did. Platoon starts with a quote, and this film starts with a quote too. Now, the quote threw me off big time because with Platoon, I think Oliver Stone, and I can't remember the quote itself, but it kind of talks about young men. And you get really Charlie Sheen, you know, his Chris character going through the Vietnam War. This quote, and I wrote it down, when you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's planes and the women come out to cup your remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains and go to your God like a soldier. And that's from Rudyard Kipling from the poem, The Young British Soldier. That's how this which, movie starts. Yeah, which I remembered that quote at the end of the movie because it, it there's a turn. So, yes. There is. And um, that, that quote threw me off because... I wasn't quite sure what it was trying to say. Because most of the time, you start with a quote and you go, hey, that's going to be a theme of the film. In this case, it turns out to illustrate (laughs) really how powerful the women of these cultures are. And and that's on full display, right, throughout this film. But I that quote bothered me for some reason when I went back and looked at, well, what the heck is, what is it from? I mean, I only know Kipling from the jungle book. Um, so in other things, but jungle books, the first thing that pops into my mind, then I started thinking, Oh, well he, he did do some things, uh, poetry, et cetera. That's when I tracked down the young British soldier. It was published in 1890, that poem. And it's really supposed to be a poem sung by an experienced soldier, giving advice to a new soldier who just arrived in India and is misbehaving in a foolish or dangerous manner. That was the intent of the poem. So when you know the context of the poem, you're going, oh, I know thematically now what I'm getting into. But I don't know if that by itself, just having that on there, unless you really know your Kipling, is going to tell you what you're in store for the way that maybe Stone used his quote for Platoon. But it was interesting because it made me do some homework on that. (laughs) So it, it makes sense. What was your initial thoughts? Like what, what did you think? I had this, I had the same experience that you did in the first 30 minutes where I'm watching it and it, it was uncomfortable for two things. It was uncomfortable for seeing the first 20 minutes because it's gruesome. 
and also trying to wrap my head around why am I reading subtitles, but I'm watching, you know, the Baldwin speaking perfect English, and yet he and has a Russian name. Solar, <laughs> and the, and the guy babies. from Solar Babies. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I thought it was okay when I watched it. And when I got away from it for about an hour or two, I kept thinking about it and tying some things back and forth. And it's one of these films that I don't know. And I'll give you a good example. We just talked about this, I don't know for how long, this this whole history of the Soviet-Afghan war that was going on in the Civil War. And that isn't even the thing that we just talked about. We, we kind of draw this line of, here's what the Soviets were doing in the late 70s going through the 80s, and how did all this stuff lead up to 9-11? And how us being involved in this civil war in some way came back to haunt us as a nation. And what was the blowback? Yeah, what exactly. was the blowback, right? So this film in 1988 may not have been as impactful as it is now. And the reason why I say that is there's a scene. So one of the things that these soldiers do is as they're going through the countryside, anytime they come across a water well, they poison it. Yep. And that plot point comes up a couple of different times. And you see the effects of somebody drinking the water and what happens to them. It's somewhat instantaneous. It's very excruciating, very instantaneous death. Absolutely. And so what happens is as they decimate this village and they're rolling through and they're just trying to crush these people, they will stop at these watering holes, take whatever water that they need, and then they poison it so that anybody within that countryside, the livestock, the people, everything else, they come across it, they drink it, they die. There's a scene in this film. Which I think is a war crime. I, I It should be if it's not, yeah. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you're right. But there's a scene in the film later on where a Russian, they come, the, they come across a Russian helicopter that landed next to the watering hole and everybody is dead because they drank from the poison water hole, the canister, you know, sitting in the bush, etc. So you have the Russians who went and decimated this countryside, poison the water. Then another group of Russians come, you know, a little bit later take from the water and they all die. And I, my immediate reaction a couple of hours later was, wow, that really is a visual and poetic description of what happened to the United States in their involvement with this Afghan war. We were out there <laughs> poisoning um, really this country by helping with the insurgency and everything else and providing it. And then we go back to the well later on and, and it bites us in our back, the whole blowback thing. Yeah, it, it's funny in 1988 how important this movie was, obviously. Well, in that no scene in and of itself, I think was trying to highlight specifically like, hey, war is bad. It's going to come back and hurt you, right? Yes, yes. There's just no positive to it. But now, 1988, post 9-11, you look at that and go, wow, that's, that's a very interesting analogy within a film that kind of describes the u.s experience with this whole exchange yeah absolutely i mean it, it's it's weird the foreshadowing that this movie kind of has even for you know 9-11 was what like would it be 13 years after this movie comes out so yeah 2001 right yeah so you know it's 
actually more important now than it was when it was released, which is crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. it's more important now because of what's happened from a historical standpoint where maybe it's more topical than something like Platoon, which was the Vietnam War, right? Yeah, yeah. But the the very first reaction I had a couple after, you know, again, I thought, wow, it was a pretty good film. There are probably some very specific things I really loved about it. And some other things, like you said, I go, I don't know if that was earned, but I found myself thinking about it a couple hours later. And it did inspire me to go back and go, well, I haven't watched Platoon in years. And I went back and watched that one and went back and watched Full Metal Jacket. And this very much is in line with all of those films that were coming out in the late 80s. And I think it is very much anti-American war the way that those other films were coming out in the late 80s. It just happened to choose a different setting and saying, hey, universally as people, we suck when it comes down to you know this kind of stuff. I was actually also taken aback by the brutality of the first 20 minutes. It's, oh, yeah. The, and the the destruction in this film is real. I mean, they're blowing yeah. some stuff up. People look like they just died in the pyrotechnics <laughs> portion of it. Yeah, on fire. <laughs> yeah, the, the decimation of the buildings and, and the carnage. Now, from a technical standpoint, it's staged so well because there were, there were, I don't know, there were times that I was just holding my breath and going, oh, my gosh, I, I can't believe <laughs> that they're filming this, right? But then you get into the atrocities of war within the first 15, 20 minutes, the poisoning of the water that we talked about, placing a villager under the tracks of a tank. Feet, feet up. Feet like, up and crushing yeah. them, setting homes and people on fire. They are gassing the women who are, who are attacking the tanks with stones. And you get, they, they, the camera never lingers on it, but if you pay close attention to the scenery, especially in the first 15 minutes where they just demolish this village which starts the story of this band from the village chasing this tank that is sort of lost in the desert and trying to stop it but everything that happens that first 15 20 minutes there are shots that are going on in the background of just people that are burned that are shot uh, there's there's one scene that just it caught me off guard like it, it almost scared me like a jump scare but somebody's like face is half melted or something. And again, the camera is never on it. It's always in the corner of it. But if you're looking at everything that's going on in the shot, it's very gruesome. Yeah. I mean, this is not their first village that they've ransacked and destroyed everything. And, but what's amazing is you get that. And what struck me afterwards, you get this beautiful scenery. Now I know it was filmed in Israel, but that is so crazy to start the film that way. And then you can find yourself after the movie's over going, well, that was some beautiful desert. But I got to say, <laughs> if you go back and look at Jason Patrick's filmography at this point, so as you do Solar Babies, this, and The Lost Boys, was was his agent trying to just get him scripts that took place in a desert at that time? I guess so, yeah. He needed some roller skates in this movie. He would have been fine. <laughs> I, do, I guess. No, I he, <laughs> well, yeah, he never really learned how to roller skate in Solar Babies. So, um, yeah, it was weird. Yeah, weird. <laughs> I, mean, I just it just was odd that we talked about Solar Babies, and then we watched this one, and I'm like, wow. I'm thinking early in his career, Jason Patrick really had a thing for wanting to do movies in a desert. I don't know. Well, can we talk about the performances? Yeah, yeah, because I have some comments on some stuff. Who do you want to start with? Uh, the two other Russian guys, Stephen Baldwin and the Gunner guy, are 
distractingly bad in this movie. <laughs> They're so cartoony. And so George Zunza is like the head tank guy. He's like yes. the commander of the tank. And Constantine, Jason Patrick, is, I guess, kind of the next guy in line. And then you have Stephen Baldwin, which he loads the cannon. And then the other guy shoots the machine gun, I guess. He's the gunner, but and he's a drunk. But they are so cartoony and so, I don't know, like they jump they're, around. They're characters they're, of the typical dumb, ignorant soldier, uneducated but, soldier, who's yeah. just there to kill people. Yeah, and but for this movie, I they stand out so much. Maybe have one of those guys be a little bit aloof or something like that, but have both having both of these guys, that's half the guys in the tank. And you want me to believe like this is a lethal killing machine where two out of the four guys are morons? Like it just it and the one George Sunday's like, Oh, this is the best gunner in the Soviet army. I'm like, Really? This guy is the best? Like I'd hate to see the worst guy. It, they are just really distracting. And then of course on the other side you have Stephen Bauer who is Cuban playing an Afghanistan an Afghanistan guy and, and he does it really well like I'm like the way he pulls off the accent and everything is fine it is distracting to look at him with that you know with the beard and stuff and you're like this guy's not he's not appropriate like it, this isn't working for me it almost looks as bad as like that Team America thing where they glue on the, <laughs> the this beard and stuff like it's it just looks bad, man. It's like they, I, I bet they browned him up a little bit too. Cause he's not that brown in, in real life. I, I, well, again, I confuse him with Tim Daly. So I'd agree with you all the time, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I is kind brown, of, is brown face bad? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, can't believe you asked that. I don't know. No, I, I find their So if you're talking about like the war genre, Baldwin specifically isn't any worse or better than what you would find in the B grade tier war films. So again, it's hard for me to compare like his performances versus the Johnny Depp and force Whiskers, everything that was in platoon. I mean, platoon had this amazing cast that took these small roles. And so they may only have a few lines. I mean, think about Johnny Depp's role as an interpreter and he, and he really only talks during that sequence when Tom Berenger is trying to interrogate, you know, the villagers, but Johnny Depp is so good in that. And I think that was one of the things where they put the, you know, hate to use this term, but they put their big guns in the big roles in terms of the acting chops. Yeah. The one mistake that they did was they, you know, Baldwin is passable, right? I don't, I don't think he's anything special. He gets the job done from a character standpoint. I think though, what happens is that the others, George, Jason, um, and even Steven, those three are so good in their roles. Yeah, and even the, the interpreter in this movie is far better. Than oh, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. when when you get somebody who is bringing that caliber of acting, everybody else can be average and just deliver what's on script. And it seems like it's overacting or it seems like it's not that good. And I don't know if that's the case or if it's just that Jason Patrick and George Zunza was just fantastic. Yeah, and, and to be clear, the cast size in this movie is less than 
the main cast is less than 10, really. Right. You have a few of the guys on the Afghan side. You have the four guys in the tank, the interpreter, and, like, this main woman character. And that's basically it. Now you have some some people in the background, but those 10 people are kind of the best, you know, your, your top people. And, again, two of the people in this movie are just really cartoonish. They just stand out. They're cartoons, really. They, well, I, I, I agree. They're cartoonish and characters of what would be a typical dumb grunt within these type of films. Even, even Full Metal Jacket has them. The only difference is when they casted the ones in Platoon and Full Metal Jacket or, you know, I mean, Casualties the one guy's named Wars. Joker in, in Full Again, Metal Matthew, Jacket. Yeah, but Matthew Modine is so good in that role. Yeah. I, I think it comes down to, like, take take um, George Zunza. He's... He's so good in this. He's he is probably one of the best movie war villains I think to hit the screen. Absolutely. He, when he I saw through the scenery. So I I will compare it to this. The first time I saw Gladiator, it took me literally way too long to like like Joaquin Phoenix after seeing Gladiator because I hated him so much in that movie. Next time I see George Zunza in a movie, I'm going to think about the beast. And I'm going to think about how much of a bastard he is in this movie and how much I hate him. It's it amazing with rage. Yes. He might be one of the best movie villains I've come across in a long time. Like that is not hands down. I agree with you a hundred percent. And the thing that did it for me, I don't know if you remember this sequence. So he's having this dialogue you you made a point early on that this film has a lot of stuff going on. It it's talking about war, it's talking about beliefs. There is a scene when they're in the tank and George is going over this I think for myself. Uh, I think it's Jason Patrick says I think for think for myself and the way he reacts to that and he goes on about thinking for the country and you get this entire backstory about when he's eight or nine fighting in this war and being out there and giving everything that he's got for his country and the sacrifice. Where he's throwing like grenades on tanks or something like that. Absolutely, yeah. And you see really just within, I don't know how long that scene is. It's not very long. It's, It's under five minutes. But he's giving this entire history of what he went through in all the different wars and what sets him off is this comment where I think it's Jason Patrick says, I think for myself, and that just sets him off. And you get this entire backstory within this monologue or this speech, and he is just mad at the world. He's he's mad at everything, and it it's brilliant. It is, it is hands down one of the best, I don't know, evil villain monologues I think I've ever seen. Yeah, take him out of the movie, and this is a much worse movie because I think he is the glue that kind of keeps this thing going. Because there are some things that he does that uh, really, really get to you and really are disgusting. And again, he orders the guy to get crushed. He shoots uh, their interpreter. He doesn't trust him because he's an Afghanistan guy. But you know, he's trying to help the Russians, which. You know, there's some stuff going on there, but, and even like saying that, you know, there's a point in the, in the movie where they could be saved, but like the tank is like the most important thing to him, not the people 
Well, his pride, his ego. He was he's yeah, not is, going to lose his tank. Is is attached to his tank. It's just, but the way he does it, and just I like. So, I know I said like with Jason Patrick, there's a turn with him. And when I was thinking about him, like this is so not earned because it's happened so fast. But so let let me stop you for a second. Okay, Are, Jason Patrick is trying to learn a little bit about the Muslim culture. And there's two concepts that come up that are really at the root of this. And it's Badal, which is revenge, and Nanawate, which is mercy or Or sanctuary, sanctuary, right? Yes. So he's trying to learn these concepts. And then through the course of the film, he ends up experiencing both. So is that what you're referencing to? Yeah, so... When he basically turns against the Russians, my initial thought was, wow, that happened really quick. But then I thought, he's actually had to be in this tank, close proximity to George Zunda's character for so long that I'm sure at some point in time, and I know he does, he comes to the realization that they are the bad guys. Absolutely. And when he comes to that realization, he's like, I can either walk this other path or I can essentially be a Nazi when he basically says, how do you deal with yourself knowing that you are now a not like we are the Nazis essentially. Well, yeah, um, he's, he says he makes the comment. How is it that we're the Nazis this time? Yes. Yes. So uh, initially when I, when I saw this, I was like, wow, that happens really fast. But then you realize that no, this other guy that he's with is a megalomaniac and is insane. And all he wants to do is essentially torture people and, you know, kill innocent people, set them on fire, all this stuff. And he will not stop. And then you realize, oh, my God, I'm a bad guy. Well, see, I think I might disagree with you. I, I think what I love about Jason Patrick is he handles those two concepts and that transformation so well. For me, Jason Patrick was a little bit unrecognizable. I, I think he's a good actor. After seeing this film, I think he's pretty freaking fantastic. He has so many nuances. If you think about up until the event where his friend basically is murdered by the the captain, he's always telling everybody, hey, this is how you avoid this, right? This is how, And he's the one that is forced to run over the villager with the tank in the beginning. So he's committing these atrocities. He's trying to get by. He's doing what he's told. But he's also telling everybody else, Hey, do this. He even tells the interpreter, when we get back, you need to get out of here. you got a target on your back now. Um, metaphorically, right? He doesn't know it's figuratively. <laughs> so, or literally, but he's, he's trying to guide everybody away from the ego and the sadism that this captain has within this war, right? And he, he handles that subtlety so well. And as soon as that event happens... I totally buy into his revenge motif. I really do. And I, I find his reactions believable. Yeah. But to turn against the whole crew, I think, I don't know. I think it just happens to... If you're left tied to a rock... Yes, yes, I understand. I understand. With a They're hand grenade on positioned your under your head. But he ordered those guys to do it. He had crushed a man with a tank because he was ordered to do it. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So 
again, there are some quick turns, but I do think upon like looking back, there might not be as quick as I as I initially thought. Um, yeah, I just think it's powerful to come to that conclusion that hey, we're actually the bad guys in this situation, and and I think that kind of is a really interesting way to make a film to all of a sudden say 90 minutes into it your main guy is like up until now I was a bad guy and how do I reconcile with this and how do I make it right and and even where he goes on his journey and the final scene of what happens to him again I I like that ending I, I really like this character so I, I'm confused by that can we talk about how what goes on there? Because this movie takes place in 1981, right? Uh, 81, 82, something like that. Something yeah. Like, so yeah. yeah. So very. Uh, this skirmish, this war, is just started. It's a couple years in. Yep. He decides to catch a ride back with the Russians. Correct. Yes. This war doesn't end until 1989. There's no way that he is leaving this war in Russia. Once you're a Russian soldier, you can't, you're not leaving. Right. Right. That's my understanding. So essentially he will just get deployed again and have to go through this again. Yes. I think that's interesting. He's given a choice. No, I would. Yeah. I, I don't, I didn't know if I had thought that through correctly. That is very interesting that. Do you change? So he, <laughs> that makes, and again, this is, this is why when I first saw the film, I'm like, wow, that was pretty good. I, I was really happy I discovered it, etc. But as the hours went by and I started thinking a little bit more about certain scenes and a little bit more about what each character was going through and that ending, I find that pretty fascinating because here's a guy that in the heat of the moment and everything that goes on within that part of the war he grasps on to these two Muslim concepts and uses them. At the end of the film, he's given he a... He exploits tr- them. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's where I think the end of the film starts to, to maybe, I don't know, turn your opinion of him a little bit, is that he uses them, but when you get to the end of the film, now the question is, did he exploit that so that he could get rid of the thing that really was bothering him about being a soldier for the Russian army. But when all is said and done, he still wants to be a soldier for the Russian army because he had an out. He had the ability to go really with the Stephen Bauer character, the the Mujahideen, and totally change his life. You know, he, he has a different perspective. He understands what he was doing to these people, what he was doing to this country. And at the end of the day, he goes back to Russia. I think that is a very interesting choice for a character. And I also want to say that might be intentional in terms of, I don't know, a criticism of us. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. I mean, deployment, multiple deployments is a thing that happens all the time. Yeah, but, I mean, but I think the criticism comes down to like, yeah, war is horrible. It's, it, it's so horrible. Look what you're doing to this country. Look what you're doing to these people. But when push comes to shove and you're given the choice to leave the comfort of what you know 
you always go back to what you know. Yeah. I thought that was a very interesting it's, choice. <laughs> because, yeah, I, I had pegged this movie as, oh, he's going to escape into Afghanistan and disappear, blah, blah, blah. And when that Russian helicopter comes down and it takes him up and you can tell that Taj, Stephen Bauer's character Taj is like instantly confused. He has to let him go because yeah. he had to let him help. He helped them destroy the tank. But it is this devastating moment for him realizing that this guy essentially played him. I don't know if it played him. I think, I think again, if we're going to talk about Stephen Bauer, he's the other the, the the trifecta where I think he's really good. Okay, take away the facial hair yes, and stuff yes. like that. Well, right. So let's take away that. Take yes. away that and talk about his performance. But the look on his face at the end, when really Jason Patrick's being you know taken off by the helicopter, that look of pain and anguish, and I I really I don't know. It's such a sad ending because he's looking at this and thinking there's hope for change within the people, within the army. But at the end of the day, there isn't. There isn't. No. Well, and there's a chance he comes back and they cross paths again and they have to kill each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I I really think, like, I haven't thought about an ending to, to a movie like this in a really long time. It affected me to a way where I was like, when I was out today, I had thought about it. Like, I thought about, I have to ask Troy what he thought about when he's going up in that helicopter, like, what does it mean? Because here's what I think, but I don't know if I'm right. Did I misread it or whatever? And it's, No, I think I had the same reaction. Like I said, as every hour went by and I'm thinking about this film, I'm going, wow, that's pretty deep. And again, it goes back to one of the things, you know, we started the, the discussion about thoughts on the film was, is that an intentional choice to say American actors speaking plain English, even using American military terms, is that a choice to point out, hey, you as an American viewer in 1988... This is you. Yep, it's it's a Russian tank, Russian soldiers in Afghanistan. This is you. Yeah, yeah, it's. But St- Stephen Bauer, I, I again take away the, <laughs> take yes. away the mustache yes, and stuff like it. that. <laughs> um, I I feel like uh, at the end of the day, he was Mohajadeen all his life. He was so good in it. I totally believed it. No, that yeah, that last part with him and his devastation. Well, through the I mean, whole through the whole movie, he's struggling with this new responsibility. Yeah, he's the new con for the village, I guess, and you know, everyone around him that is important has died, is killed by these Russians. His uncle, I guess, his father and brother. Yeah, so it's and, like, and the one that he sort of hooks up with, uh, which is which is a bandit, I guess, or scavenger. Yeah, he would be your kind of your more typical like Taliban. When you think of like a ta- like yes. someone in the Taliban, you think of this guy. But there's that sequence know? where they're going after the tank, and then as soon as they find the Russian helicopter, and his buddy's like, nope, I got what I wanted. Are you going yeah. after that tank? Go ahead, because we found sort of the spoils of war by just being able to stumble across this, this helicopter where these people drank from the water and died. And so he's not in it for um, the revenge aspect or the badal. He was in it in terms of profiteering from the situation and again, exploiting yeah, Stephen Bauer's character. Yeah. So, yes. a- again, Stephen Bauer is so good in this because he's watching. He he truly has belief. He is seeking out revenge, and he's trying to lead his people. And between Jason Patrick and everybody else around him, he's he's starting to understand 
in this role of leadership, how people are going to react around him and, and who is doing it to be opportunistic versus faith, etc. And I think here's the other thing. If you look at some of the dialogue just on paper by itself, I think it reads kind of preachy and it comes off very heavy handed. But the way that especially those three elicit the dialogue, it comes through as very authentic. So the interpreter, there was a line that stuck out when somebody was asking about um, his Muslim belief. And he says the line, after university, I'm not sure what I believe. Yeah. yeah. And I love that line because it really is highlighting sort of the difficulty of everybody trying to take in what's going around them and their beliefs and make sense of it. And then there's... Now, before you move on, I think it was very poignant that the thing that takes the captain over the edge with this guy is him praying. Yes. And him having his moment to himself to pray to Allah. That's the moment where it's like that basically sends him over the edge to kill him. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and obviously they're saying, you know, he's already talked about individuality with, you know, Russians is, you know, we're communists, whatever. But yeah, that, that to me was like, boy, when that happened, like he, he was- literally, took almost took my breath away like it was so i was so upset and so shocked and hurt. i think i was literally hurt by it oh it, i was too you knew you knew it was coming like he had tried it before and you're like this guy sadly has a ticking time bar he's got a clock on him because well and he knows he's affecting jason patrick because jason patrick orders to kill him and he doesn't yeah so he knows that this person of faith is starting to shake up his men and their beliefs within the communist party and then there were a couple other lines we talked about one how is it we're the nazis this time and you can't be a good soldier in a rotten war if if you just look at those that one one was the one that got me yeah but if you and i were to do that we'd come off schmaltzy and heavy-handed and we couldn't sell these lines yeah i'm not manly at all (laughs) yeah well it's not even manly It's, it's just the authentic yeah personal struggle and, and them dealing with their inner demons and the choices that they're making in the time of battle, Jason Patrick sells those lines. That's how good he is because just on paper you go, ooh, that's kind of heavy-handed, right? Duh. Yes, yes. Of, of course, bad wars, Nazis, stuff like that. But the way they do it, you feel it, and like you said, it, it really gets to you. And again, that's, that's how good those three performances are. Now, I will say, Troy, one of the things I had a hard time not thinking about with this movie is Pirates of the Caribbean. And you know what? Want to know why? <laughs> why? I did not expect you to say that. Okay. Why? <laughs> I know. Because we went through all this heady shit and then now I'm bringing <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. But in that movie, they're getting ready to kill, uh, what is her name? Swan? Swan? What was her first name? Elizabeth? Elizabeth Swan. And she says, parlay. And they can't do it, you know, so they have to take her to the captain and all this stuff. For some reason, when he like, is going to get killed, and he says whatever. All I could think about is Parlay from Pirates, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's there. It's yeah. there. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I like how they handle it. I mean, they bring it up. Yeah, it's much better. Hey, they handle it better in this than they do in Pirates. Yeah, there it just doesn't go. come out of nowhere. Because he's yeah. explaining the Muslim culture to him in these concepts. And, and he, again, they come up. But it's two of them, you know, between the revenge and really the sanctuary mercy become pivotal within the story and the character development. 
Well, I think does that show them that he has some sort of interest in their culture or I cuz I think me, he, I think he he has interest in believing something. Okay. Yeah. So And they respect that. And yes. obviously in their in that sort of system you say that you can't treat these people badly cuz then you're tr- you know you're just as bad as the infidels is what they kind of say is like if you treat this by- guy badly you know we're just as bad as they are and yeah and i, I think it's J- just an inter- it is and i think inter- jason patrick is it, it, you can see the struggle within the script and the character development of him saying i have been groomed to believe in the state or to believe in the government or believe in man but look at where it's getting me versus you start kicking the tires on religion or the Muslim culture. And there really appears to be not just a fascination with it, but almost a yearning to say, I want that type of belief in my life other than believing in these things, because look at where these things are getting me. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it goes back to his performance. Yeah. I will tell you, man, like for a little tank war movie, like this one, like got me not like, and like you said, it wasn't my, like, right after I was done, like, I was kind of like, yeah, that was good. That was fine. Like, I liked it. Um, and then when I kept thinking about it and thinking about it and kind of marinating in it, I was like, wow, that ending, like, I hate to be, like, so, like, hyperbolic, and but the ending in this movie really is fantastic because of the fact that it's, like, so powerful and the turn that he takes, I wasn't expecting it. And then you start thinking about what that means for the future of this character. And you're like, I was like so bewildered. Like it was just, <laughs> I don't know, man. No, like, I'm with you. Well, and it, so the other thing that I, I thought right afterwards is from a technical aspect, cause I wrote some notes down the interior of the tank is claustrophobic. And I love the editing and the filmmaking that's going on as there's action and you're inside the tank with them. He's giving out commands. You're seeing what everybody's doing. The tank is spinning, the carnage or whatever that's going on outside of it. And even the scene about the 360 degree defense sequence when all weapons are open fire. Oh, yeah, and they spray out the fire and stuff. Everything. Yeah. I, my initial reaction, again, walking away from it was, wow, there's some things I really loved. And one of the things I loved about this was the editing. Even the chase sequence that kind of occurs at the end which is a little bit of, of an action sequence, it is very thrilling with them running on foot, the tank trying to get to that pass and everything that happens from there. Yeah. I, from a directing and, and editing standpoint, those were the things that stuck out. But like you said, you let it marinate for a couple hours and you go, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And it's one of those rare films that if you don't know the history of it, look, just forget the whole war aspect. And you're looking for something that has probably, I don't know, it, it's not your Rambos. It has a little bit more to say, but it has some of those action elements. This film is right there. It's, it handles its action very well. And all of the sequences and, and even the thrills are there from that perspective. But man, does it pack a punch if you're paying attention to this thing. Yeah, even like him knowing so much of the ins and outs of the tank, knowing that like if they're up on top of this hillside, they can't shoot them because the, the turret doesn't shoot that high. Like him just knowing these little facets about the tank 
gives him this advantage because two guys with an RPG against a tank, I mean, even with the RPG, you're thinking, I don't know if they have a chance, but one of the guys literally knows everything about the tank. The other guy literally knows everything about the country and the terrain. So it's a fair fight. And, you know, that it's so believable that they're going to take down this tank because it, of that fact. Yeah, and what happens, so they keep talking about a David and Goliath analogy throughout the entire film. And you literally get that analogy coming to life with the ending sequence. So without going into a lot of detail, it then pulls back to why we get that uh, opening from Kipling about the women. Yes. And how, you know, such a strong culture of fierce fighters, even within the women. And it, it just all comes together. So the very first frame to the film to where this David and Goliath analogy are coming through all the way to the end. It's just perfect, perfectly mapped out, I think, from, from a script perspective. They do so much with it. I don't know, man. I, I really, really... It's probably why I felt so uncomfortable at the beginning of the podcast talking about like our usual stuff with, hey, let's get to the numbers and da-da-da, because I wanted to get to this stuff, because this is where I think the film is so interesting, and I... I, I want to meet Nick and like shake his hand and go, thank you. I don't know why I didn't watch this thing sooner. Yeah. And I'm glad I watched it now versus 1988 as well. Yeah. And I'm glad I watched it alongside you. And I had literally was like, okay, in three days I'm talking to Troy about this. Cause I have so many thoughts, so many questions and the film's not perfect. I think some characters in this movie suck really bad. Uh, but there's so much good about it that almost like doesn't even matter the bad parts of this movie. Um, I, and again, I don't, I don't think there's anything bad. I just, I think this is one of those films where the average stuff is highlighted to be average because the stuff that is so good is, is just a plus Academy I mean, if you're really saying that the Academy Award is representative of the best of cinematography or the best of acting or anything of that nature, there are some Academy Award performances here that obviously didn't really get any recognition. Yeah. But because you get those sequences that are so good in there, everything else that's average or maybe even a little B minus, they stand out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with that. But, wow. I mean, there's so much good about this movie. There is. I. I would have, again, right after seeing it, said Platoon, Full Metal Jacket. You know, I got, I got to tell you, we talk about war films. Out of everything in the 80s that ever affected me, I think it was born on the 4th of July. And it was because, again, dumb shit I remember. I remember seeing it at Cinemas West in the afternoon. And sitting in there, and I, I, I think I went with friends, my dad or something of that nature. But a couple rose up. Is a guy by himself and there's a sequence within that um that tom cruise is going through and the gentleman up front is just weeping like loudly and he's a bit of an older gentleman but the that always stuck with me because these films if done correctly and you stick with the characters and everything else you really feel the pain and the anguish that these men and women had to go through during those times and even the pain and anguish that like the country went through. So if, if we're talking about, um, 
I, I don't want to call it like there, I don't have a war film that's my favorite, but of the ones that impacted me in terms of viewing it, it was always born on the 4th of July and it was a combination of how good that film is, but watching somebody, which never talked to him, but I have to assume he served in the military at some point because there were things that were happening in that film and that guy was just literally weeping. And it wasn't one of those kind of like cries where it's a rom-com or something dramatic's happening. I mean, it was one of those somebody's traumatized type crying. Yeah. Now, the, the Beast, I don't think, hits those emotional highs. But I really feel it's a fantastic thinking person's war film. Are you calling me a thinking person, Troy? I am. I... Wow, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I... So... One of the one, I, I mean, I guess because we're kind of a little bit different in age. Yeah. Um, I was in high school when nine eleven happened, and unfortunately, you know, like something like Zero Dark Thirty speaks to me a little bit more, just because like friends of mine from high school went on to serve. Some of them die. You know, there's like this connection with that film because of the time period um, that you know speaks to me, just because of you know who I knew at the time and what happens. The consequences of 9-11, sadly, that we're still dealing with now. But, you know, it, yeah. So, I, I mean, I understand. Like, war films aren't supposed to be fun. Yeah, and, and I, it, the thing of it is, I had, well, I mean, one of my best friends who served, who went multiple tours over there. Was uh, he the ninja? 9-11. He was the ninja. Nice. So, I, those films never got to me because of the experiences I was having outside of real life. And again, I would still kind of go back to, there was something about the storytelling in the late eighties. And I don't know if it's happened as well. Zero dark 30 is a great film. Blackout down. All, all those are great films, but I think Hollywood or the art of telling these stories moved away from these personal stories. And I don't know, concentrating on the characters going through it and started to go to what we have in terms of Midway 1917 and, and you know, Dunkirk of just saying it, it's not about the characters as much as about the spectacle. Isn't that what all movies are now, just about the spectacle? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. They're, they're <laughs> it's few and far between that you get something of that topic that's pretty dense. But, it, you know, not saying the 80s were the best decade ever of film. I just find this very fascinating that this particular topic or genre has gone from a transformation and I know you and I have talked about this. I don't think they could make these films the way that they did in the late eighties today. I don't, I don't think they can do a full metal jacket or platoon today. Yeah. I mean the anti American stuff is, is difficult. No, no, no. Because... It's, it, I'm talking about like the character. I just, Oh, okay. Oliver Stone. If you sit down and watch any of his interviews, et cetera, of what he went through and how personable those films are. Show me a director who has that voice, regardless of what you think of Oliver Stone, just his experiences with that war and what he was able to put on film is very unique. And I don't know of any filmmakers today. And I would be curious. I mean, I would love for our listeners to come back and say, look at these people who went through these things within um, 2001 and beyond and see how they have transferred that vision into something that is a, a personal character study of somebody going through that war. Yeah. 
Sorry, I'm stumped. So, <laughs> hey, somebody write in. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, um, I guess all that's left is the big question, right? So we both went into this one blind, and um, Nick said, "Hey, Criterion, put this sucker out." Honestly, you know what? They should. I think this. Like, I think we should start a letter campaign to Criterion and help Nick out. <laughs> this movie is more poignant now than it ever has been. I really. would. Lo- I would love to see all. Of, I would love for Reynolds to do an audio commentary on this thing, because I have Absolutely. a lot of questions about. Absolutely. You know the choice of why not speaking even with a Russian accent and trying to do what you did with Robin Hood, Prince yeah. of Thieves, or something like that. Like when we were talking, I kept thinking about that Tom Cruise movie Valkyrie, where like he speaks German and it kind of subtly yeah. changes over to English. And then they just kind of laid that groundwork for like, yeah, he's an, he's an American guy, but we, he spoke German for the first 30 seconds of the film. So, you know, there it is. Yeah. Again, um, I think it's intentional, but I could be wrong. Kevin yeah, Reynolds yeah. would be like that. Ah, we didn't want to mess with it. Cause you know, half a subtitled film is easier to sell than a full subtitled film. I don't know. Well, he couldn't sell it at all. So. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, but the question is, Brad, is 1988's The Beast or The Beast of War, is it a bomb? It is definitely not a bomb. I agree 100%. Yeah. And Nick, thank you so much for writing in to tell us about this film. And I can't thank you enough for making us watch it, man. This, this has been, out of the 30 episodes that we've done, this has been a highlight, man, to discover this one. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, there aren't many films that you get to go in and know nothing about. And this was one of those movies, even like magically, you know, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to have to stream this and it's going to be low quality, blah, blah, blah. Literally the day I'm going to go watch it. Amazon prime is like, here it is in HD and it actually looks pretty good. And I'm like, Oh wow, this is great. So it all like came into like a head and it was, it was awesome. So um, you're gonna be mad at me, so I had that DVD you sitting watched, there. You watched that DVD. I watched the DVD because I felt so bad if I, I didn't know. watch the DVD. So, <laughs> what you should have done is just put it in the DVD player and then streamed it from Amazon. You would have been maybe, but fine. the DVD look, it had um, digitally mastered audio and anamorphic video, widescreen and full screen presentations. Ooh, what is a double disc? Did you flip it? Oh yeah, it's, it's the single disc where full screens on one Fli- side, yeah, widescreen. Yeah, so. I remember those. Um, and I got to tell you the the cover art and everything for the DVD doesn't really sell it. And if you're looking, so you were saying nobody really saw this upon release on the back of the DVD cover, there's one review quote. So you know how movies will usually have, you know, Chicago yeah, sometimes the pull quote. Yeah. So the, this pull quote, no film, this side of platoon has been more bold and unflinching and showing the explosive nightmares of combat. Dave Starrett. Now, where do you think Dave Starrett comes from? If you're saying a major news outlet, no. This is a pull quote from the Christian Science Monitor. Wow. Yeah. So they, they loved it. But I can't recommend. Hey, look, folks. If You if would think that the Christians wouldn't <laughs> like this movie too much because of yeah, the, the Allah stuff. Yeah. yeah but, uh, look, hey, I'm just telling you, folks. If, if you have not watched anything that we've talked about in the last 30 episodes, please go watch this one. If yeah, you have Amazon, it's on Amazon Prime, Prime, it's free. Yep. Come on, man. Yep. Um, well, that leads us to the big question of episode 31 brad so you get to pick yeah so this comes in this recommendation comes with our friend randy who randy usually gets on me for a lot of stuff randy gets on you for a lot of stuff oh like everything so to make good with randy i am picking 
one of his movies that he recommended. I am picking Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which Nicolas Cage, come on back and welcome Mr. Warren Herzog to the show. We get to, he directed that film from 2009. Um, oh, that'd be now, a good this, discussion. Is this a sequel to the original Bad Lieutenant? Like, should I watch the first, like, I've heard it's not, but pseudo okay hey good news i've got the first bad lieutenant on blu-ray and i haven't opened it so it's going to give me an excuse to open it okay watch that in conjunction with this one yeah because the first one had harvey keitel yes it's harvey keitel okay so this recommendation came up when we were you get full frontal harvey keitel in that movie it's oh yeah yeah um this one came up when we were when we were doing our uh nicholas cage episode right yes so we were talking about our favorite nicholas cage movies and this was Randy's recommendation based off that. Awesome. So, so with, maybe Randy will get off my back finally. <laughs> it depends. He recommended this one. And if you show up next week and start, you know, crapping all over this one, I got a feeling you're going to get a Zodiac letter. Yeah. This one does star X to the Z exhibit. So we will have plenty of exhibit jokes. Do you know who exhibit is dad? Um, he's that rap guy. He is. A rap, he was in that show. <laughs> Pit my ride. He's, he um, wasn't in the Steven Seagal movie. Oh, no, that was DMX. DMX. Okay. Do not get DMX in Exhibit. I, oh, Troy. I, I'm sorry. Don't get him. It's, okay. it's a genre of music I need to explore. Like, Run DMC. There you go. That's there you go. I love Run DMC. I love yeah. BC Boys. So, the 80s stuff, I'm in. Run DMC has the best Christmas song of all time, so. Uh, agreed. I'll, I'll give you that. So, Brad, if anybody else wants to shoot us some recommendations, Nick, if you've got another beauty like in your pocket like this one, please send it immediately. Absolutely. But, Brad, if anybody wants to recommend any bombs that they want us to cover, how do they get a hold of us? Um, that would be notabombpod at gmail.com. Um, we're on Twitter, notabombpod, Instagram, notabombpod. Find us on Facebook. My New Year's resolution was to stay off my phone a lot more, but I'm going to make an exception for doing stuff for the show, like promotion and social media. So I'm going to not do my own personal one, but I'll do one for the sh- I'll do it for the show. So. Awesome. Well, I, hey, did you, so our friends, our good friends, we had um, the VHS Files podcast and also Friends with Cinefits. Uh, they had both done Christmas runs. Have you finished listening to all of them so i just started die hard which is the best christmas movie of all time so i will let you know about that one from vhs files okay yeah i i'm gonna start that one tomorrow but if you haven't checked those podcasts out go and give a listen to them you will find friends with cinefits on our webpage mm-hmm. and the vhs files podcast i i gotta tell you i can't say this enough i really <laughs> that's the podcast um, Josh is going to kill me. I love listening to it in the morning because just hearing their voices makes me feel like you're just walking through a video store with those guys and it puts me in the greatest mood ever. So really like that podcast, um, go and support them. It's a fantastic listen. And we're going to, Josh have- has been great. He came on our show. He's helped do some promotion stuff. It's been, you know, you and I met, you know, kind of in a weird way, you know, just happened to be at a, a convention that you'd met Charlie at, you know, a few months before, you know, and then we met Josh through doing this, you know, just him reaching out. So, you know, one of the good things about 
kind of putting a product out into the ether is sometimes people listen to it and they like it and then they reach out to you and then all of a sudden you're friends, you know, it's just kind of how the world works. And you know, in 2020, that's kind of what I needed, you know? No, way. absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So, and it, it's just a good listen. Like I said, I, I, I intentionally listen to that in the morning because it just puts me in a good mood the rest of the day. Not that yeah, you know, it, other shows it do, help, they're, it, help, they're it helps that the show doesn't suck. So it's like, <laughs> oh, listen to it. It's actually really good. So Yeah, yeah it's fun. Yes. Well, um, listen, that was our first show of 2021. I I, I hope we didn't suck. I, I think we got a lot of movies to talk about this year that are going to be fun. I'm interested to tackle another Nick Cage film. So I'm, I'm glad you picked that one. Yeah, it's not Vampire's Kiss, which came out the same month as The Beast. Oh, yeah, good point. We'll probably have to tackle that one, too. We might have to do a Nick Cage month. I don't know. He's had a lot of bombs. But, hey, Brad, Happy New Year again. I'm looking forward to all the great discussions we're going to have this year. Hopefully, the New Orleans Port of Call, Bad Lieutenant film. I don't have a whole lot of homework for that one. I don't want to learn about any more, like, history Thank Dude, God. I studied more for this movie than I think I did a lot in college, which says a lot. But yeah, thank God yeah, there's no I, math. Oh, God. Yeah, well. All right. Well, hey, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, evening, or afternoon. Thank you for downloading the episode. Thank you for just being our friends. And I hope you're off to a great start this year. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.